Well, let us continue in worship by opening our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This morning we're looking at verses 14 through 21. We continue to consider the question that was asked in chapter 2, verse 12. What does this mean? And today we're going to hear the first part of that answer that goes all the way through verse 36. But this morning, verses 14 through 21. Please listen to the reading of God's word this morning. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. And we do ask now that you will help us by the spirit to understand and apply these words to our hearts. Teach us to love you more and to know what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the call with which we have been called. May Christ be exalted. May saints continue to be sanctified and may sinners be brought to repentance and faith in Christ. And all these things we pray in his name. Amen. God is faithful to his promises. I don't know of too many other truths that can bring so much comfort and peace to the believer's soul than to know that God is faithful to his promises. What else is there to hold on to in the darkest moments of life than the reality that God is faithful to his promises when the terminal illness is diagnosed, does not the faithfulness of God become a rock upon which to lean? When the final breaths are being taken, does not the faithfulness of God comfort the dying man? When the loved one is torn apart, From us, does not the faithfulness of God prove a source of the peace that surpasses understanding? When the relationship goes horribly wrong, does not the faithfulness of God infuse us with hope? Christian, few other questions are as critical to our lives than the question, is God faithful? Undoubtedly, Few other questions are more essential to the well-being of our hearts than that one. Today, 
we are delighting ourselves in the faithfulness of God as demonstrated in the coming of the Holy Spirit during Pentecost. And hopefully by the end of this sermon, you and I will rejoice in knowing that God's faithfulness to his promises is the reason why you and I are here this morning. That is why. That because of the faithfulness of God, you and I can rejoice in our fellowship sing praises to Christ, take pleasure in his word and seek to live in submission to God's will. And God's faithfulness is the reason you and I can persevere through our trials and find hope in our sorrows. It is all because God is faithful. Now remember this, even though Peter is the one doing the speaking, don't forget who wrote the book, who wrote it. Is the third gospel. I'm giving you a clue. Luke. Luke is the one who collected the material, is the one who took notes, and then he sent those notes to Theophilus. Why did he do that? I believe he did this because, as we saw several weeks ago, Luke knew that Theophilus needed something. According to the gospel of Luke chapter 1, verse 4, Theophilus needed certainty. Theophilus needed certainty concerning the things he had been taught. And you know what? Many of us need to be given greater certainty regarding the things we are being taught. If we are honest, there are many circumstances, many trials, many challenges, and many difficulties that seek to diminish our certainty regarding the things we have been taught. There's no need to hide that struggle. And if we want to be specific, many times the uncertainty grows precisely in the realm of the faithfulness of God. Thankfully, if there is anything taught with absolute certainty in the Bible is precisely that God is what? Faithful. In fact, in what some have considered to be the summary statement of the entire book of Psalms, it is the faithfulness of God that takes center stage in Psalm 117, which is only two verses long. We read these marvelous words. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Verse two, for great is his steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. In verse one, there is a call to worship. Praise the Lord. And in verse two, we're given the reason for worshiping, which boils down to two things. The steadfast love of the Lord and the faithfulness of the Lord. And that, my friends, sums it all up. That is it. We praise the Lord because he's both loving and faithful. Faithful. In Acts chapter two, verses 14 through 21, we see the faithfulness of God being put on historic display from three different angles, all of which serve to convey the same truth, namely that God never fails. So let's consider the first one. God is faithful to his promises as seen in the regathering of God's scattered old covenant people. The regathering of God's scattered old covenant people. Throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel, the people of God, 
we see in them a pattern that is hard to miss. This pattern is more clearly seen in the book of Judges, where the people of God cycles essentially through four stages. First, rebellion. Second, judgment. Third, deliverance. I'm sorry, repentance. And finally, deliverance. Rebellion, judgment, repentance, deliverance. And this happens over and over and over again. The people of God first become rebellious against God. This was normally expressed through idolatry and the adoption of pagan practices, which were strictly prohibited by the Lord. Consequently, the rebellion led to judgment, which came in the form of pagan nations taking over the people of Israel and causing tremendous amount of suffering. This led the people of God to repent of their ways and return to the Lord. So they would plead with the Lord to forgive them of their sins. And finally, the Lord would listen to their plea and he would send what? A deliverer, also known as a judge, such as Othniel, Shamgar, Gideon, or Samson, to set them free from their captors. That was the pattern in the life of Israel. And the book of Judges stands as a picture of what the Old Testament people of God were prone to do. Rebellion, judgment, plead for forgiveness, and finally deliverance. Eventually and sadly, Israel, and by that mean uh, both the northern and southern kingdoms, ended dispersed all over the world. The Old Testament people of God were scattered across the earth. A good summary of this, and I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 16 and 19. This is a good background for what is happening in the book of Acts chapter 2. Listen to how the Lord spoke about his disobedient and rebellious people, the people of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 36 beginning in verse 16. Listen to the reading of the word. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Verse 18. So I poured out my wrath upon them, for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. Verse 19, consider those words. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. Interesting to read that the Lord judged his people, Israel, by doing that, scattering them, dispersing them through the nations. But then... Through the same prophet and in the same chapter, God speaks these amazing words of hope. Ezekiel 36, verse 24 and 27. Here's what God said he would do for his people after he scattered them. Verse 24, I will take you, meaning Israel, my people, from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you where? Into your own land. Verse 27, notice this. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice with me, please. 
that the regathering, the ingathering of the people of Israel back to Jerusalem, promised in the Old Testament, is also accompanied by what? The giving of the Spirit. Did you see that? But this is not unique to Ezekiel. Turn your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 32. There's something very similar being spoken here by prophet Isaiah chapter 32. And we will consider verses 12 through 15 and then verse 18. Isaiah 32 verse 12. Please keep in mind the context. Isaiah is speaking about the land of Jerusalem in desolation and forsaken. This again is a reference to the people of God being scattered and dispersed because of their rebellion. Verse 12. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. Verse 14. For the place, for the palace is forsaken. The populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dense forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Verse 15. Until... So listen to this. There will be desolation. It'll all be forsaken until what? The spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field in, is deemed a forest. Verse 18, my people will abide in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Once again, we see the flow of events. First, the people are scattered. Second, the land is desolate. And third, restoration is given as the spirit of God is poured out. Let's go back to Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two, we begin to see God do something marvelous. Pentecost is an amazing display of God's faithfulness to his people because during Pentecost, we see two specific things taking place. First, notice with me, the people of God are gathered in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter two, verse five, what do we read? Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews from where? From every nation under the sun, from every nation under the sun, what do we see here in Acts 2? We see the ingathering of the Jewish people back to where? Back to their land. They're coming back to their land, Jerusalem. Due to the Feast of Weeks, Jews who were living in different nations of the earth, those who had been scattered, had gathered in Jerusalem. Consider also the comprehensiveness of the language of Peter. How he addresses the audience. In chapter 2, verse 14... Peter says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. In chapter 2, verse 22, men of Israel. And then he brings all to a conclusion in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of what? Israel. Why is this significant? It is very significant because with this comprehensive language, what is taking place, the Bible is signaling that God is beginning to regather his people, thus bringing about the restoration of Israel. This is the first thing we must notice. Peter's words to all the men of Israel indicates that Peter knows this is a very significant moment. 
God's people are coming from all different nations and they are being gathered in their own land of Jerusalem. Peter knows this. God is bringing his people back. And the words spoken by Ezekiel and Isaiah are seeing their historic fulfillment. The audience listening to Peter's sermon are none other than the scattered people of God coming back to their land. Now this also fits the commission given to the disciples by Jesus before he ascended. What did he tell them in Acts chapter one, verse eight? You will be my witnesses beginning where? In Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria. So why did Peter address his first words to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem? For two reasons. First, these are the people of God coming back to their own land, as was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. Second, this is where the restoration of the kingdom of Israel was to begin, namely in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. But as I said, and according to the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah, the restoration of the people of Israel was accompanied not only by their return to the land of Israel and Jerusalem, but also, and secondly, by a magnificent event. Remember what I said when we read the prophecies? The outpouring of the spirit, which is our second point. God is faithful to his promises as shown in the historical outpouring of the promised spirit, the historical outpouring of the promised spirit. Do you remember the mockery in verse 12? Some people took the events of Pentecost as just a bunch of people being drunk to that accusation. Peter simply says, come on, it's way too early for that. The third hour of the day was nine o'clock in the morning. So Peter is simply appealing to common sense. These people have not been drinking. The explanation of these supernatural events is not alcohol. Rather, says Peter, what you are seeing and hearing is the present time, actual and historic manifestation of the faithfulness of God to his written word. However, it is at this very point, we need to be very, very careful as we enter into this quote from Peter. We need to exercise extreme caution. In fact, I want to take this as an opportunity to remind us of the proper biblical interpretation. What does it look like? Someone once said, a text without a context is just a pretext. A text without a context is just a pretext. Meaning, if you don't read a text within its context, you can use it for whatever you want. So here is a very important lesson regarding the central place of context for proper biblical interpretation. Context is everything. Few portions of scripture provide a better example of why this is the case. Just think about it. If you were reading these verses on their own without giving proper attention to what surrounds them, meaning the context, you would be tempted to read them as though Peter's words were about future events, especially as you come to verse 17. In the last days, it shall be. If you just open your Bible to these set of verses and read them independently from everything else, you would think Peter is thinking about future events. 
But that would be a very serious mistake. Now, it is true that for the prophet Joel, as he was given this prophetic knowledge during Old Testament times, for him, it was what? Future. Joel did see things to come. But this is not so for the apostle Peter. So what does the context tell us? It tells us two things. First, Peter is explaining current events. Current for him. Peter's words are his explanation of the events of Pentecost. Therefore, for Peter, these words are not future. They are present. Second, Peter is inserting the words of the prophet Joel into his explanation of then present events, thus telling us that Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled. The context then clearly informs us that the words of Peter are not yet to come. They are happening as he speaks. For Joel, they were future. For Peter, they are present. This being the case, we conclude that Peter's words mean at least three amazing things. First, here's the first thing we learn from this. We are in the last days. We are in the last days. As Peter quotes Joel, notice how he changes the wording. In the original prophecy in Joel chapter 2 verse 28, Joel said, And it shall come to pass that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. Peter, however, takes those words and he rearranges them to the here and now. Listen to Peter 17. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Almost all the commentaries that I consulted agree that Peter, by rephrasing the original prophecy, is applying it to his own time. Peter is seeing the fulfillment of the prophecy come to pass before his very eyes. And that's how he understood it. In other words, Peter is no longer waiting for the promise. The promise has already come. Now in this regard, I completely agree with John Stott who said this. And I quote, we must be careful not to requote Joel's prophecy as if we are still awaiting its fulfillment. For this is not how Peter understood and applied the text. The whole messianic era, which stretches between the two comings of Christ, is the age of the spirit in which his ministry is one of abundance. End quote. Brothers and sisters, if Peter and the apostles understood themselves to be living in the last days, so are we. We are living in the last days. Or to be more specific, we are living in the overlap between the present age and the age to come. The last days are the days between the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And this age is marked by the outpouring of the spirit on all flesh. Consider my next observation that Peter saw Joel's prophecy as a present reality means not only that we are in the last days, but second, it means, and don't get nervous about this, Okay, it means that we all possess the spirit of prophecy. The spirit, notice, was poured out on who? All 
flesh. What does that mean? Well, Peter actually explains what that means in terms that might seem a, a bit confusing to us. First, he spoke of prophecy, visions, and dreams. This is where Baptists get a little nervous about stuff. Yeah. Talking about prophecy and visions and dreams. What are we to make of that? Well, I think these three words, prophecy, visions, and dreams, are three different terms to explain one general concept. What is that concept? Spiritual understanding. Spiritual understanding. Both Luther and Calvin understood it this way. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to go with them. Calvin explained prophecy, visions, and dreams as, and I quote, the rare and excellent gift of understanding. What about all those people that are mentioned? The prophecy speaks about three categories of people, sons and daughters, young men and old men, male servants and female servants. What's the point? Well, the point is that the spirit has been poured out on all flesh, regardless of gender, age, or social status. Whether you are young or old, male or female, rich or poor, all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what's the biblical evidence that this is what Joel and Peter actually meant? I think all we have to do is to listen to Jeremiah. This is precisely what Jeremiah prophesied would happen. And this is precisely the blessing of the new covenant. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his neighbor saying, know the Lord. For, why? For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. If we are in Christ, we possess the spirit and therefore we know the Lord. Now, this takes us back to a wish that another famous biblical character had. In Numbers 11, as the people of Israel were becoming too much for Moses, remember how he was getting frustrated so much so that he was ready to die. Instead of continuing listening to the people complain, the Lord told Moses to appoint 70 men to carry the burden with him. Now, long story short, in Numbers 11:25, we read that as soon as the spirit rested on them, the 70, they did what? They prophesied. They prophesied. And later on in the same chapter, we hear Moses say these hopeful words. This is Moses. Would or I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets. Did you hear that? I wish that all of Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. During Pentecost, as the spirit of God is poured out, I believe Moses 
wish was granted. He didn't get to see the day, but the Lord did eventually put his spirit on all people, meaning all who call on the name of the Lord. Now it is clear that some have been given the gift of prophecy in a specific way, in the sense that some are equipped by the spirit to proclaim, explain, and apply God's truth to God's people. I believe all elders, for example, are given this gift since one of the requirements is that they must be able to teach. They must be able to teach. There is a sense in which pastors and elders are uniquely qualified for that task. In a general sense, however, all Christians possess the spirit of prophecy because as Jeremiah said, and as Joel and Peter confirm, the spirit has been given to all who believes. Therefore, mothers can teach gospel truth to their children. Missionaries, both male and female, can be used by God to bring the good news of the gospel to the nations. We can all speak the gospel of Christ to one another as we provide mutual encouragement, counsel, and support. In short, our ability to grasp, to understand, and to apply God's truth to our lives is in itself the gift of the spirits. Brothers and sisters, we are seeing the effects of Pentecost, even right now, as I speak. As you take the truths you are hearing, it is the Spirit of God, the one who opens your mind, gives you understanding, and molds your life according to the truth. So we praise God for the Spirit. And by the way, this is, I'm going to make a short coming on this. We're going to get into this later on, but this is why we are Baptist and we're not Presbyterian. Uh, because we believe that all those who are in the new covenant possess what? The spirit. We are not a mixed community anymore. All those who are members of the new covenant possess the spirit of God because the spirit has been given in all flesh, meaning all those who call on the name of the Lord. Therefore, we don't have unbelievers within the new covenant. And we'll get into that as we get to the last part of chapter two. And finally, that Peter saw Joel's prophecy as a present reality means third, that the day of the Lord has partially come. Have you heard the expression, the already not yet? The day of the Lord has partially come already, but not yet already, but not yet in, in his prophecy, Joel who lived and wrote these words 800 years prior to the actual events of Pentecost, he spoke of signs and wonders. He mentioned things as such as blood, fire, vapor of smoke, this sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood, and all these in anticipation of the day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day. So the key phrase in verse 19 and 20 is the day of the Lord. It controls how we are to understand the signs and wonders. So what is the day of the Lord? It is certainly a, a big, big, big concept. It runs through the entire Old Testament. Many of the prophets spoke of the day of the Lord. We obviously cannot cover all those references, but I can try to offer you a summary. For the Old Testament prophets, the day of the Lord was both a day of judgment, but also a day of mercy. A day of judgment and a day of mercy. Both of these elements are present in the Old Testament understanding of the magnificent day, the day of the Lord. 
while the coming with the coming of the king comes both vengeance on his enemies as well as mercy on his chosen people. Well then, where do we see this? We see it in the redemptive work of Christ taken as a whole. The day of the Lord consists of the two comings of Christ. The first one in his incarnation, suffering, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and the bestowal of mercy upon his people. And the second one in his glorious return when he will defeat his enemies and cast them into hell. In this sense, the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ are two phases of one event. Namely, the day of the Lord that magnificent day. Therefore, the day of the Lord is a day of victory, but this day of victory must consist of both the death of our Lord for the sins of his people, thus securing their salvation, and also the return of the Lord, thus securing the final defeat of his enemies. This explains, in part, the signs and wonders that Peter quotes during Pentecost. Consider this, as Jesus hanged on that cross and died. Both Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that there was darkness over the whole land for about three whole hours. Clearly, clearly a physical sign that something of apocalyptic proportions was taking place. Luke even says that during these hours, the sun's light failed. Literally, the sun was turned to darkness, just like we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 20. Matthew adds that as Jesus died, the earth shook and the rocks were split. Moreover, 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven for his coronation, he poured out his spirit, which is accompanied by signs and wonders such as the tongues of fire and the mighty rushing wind. All of this is connected to the first coming of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, in a sense, the day of the Lord has come, at least partially. It will be final when the Lord returns in glory to bring judgment on the earth and vengeance on all his enemies. But the question remains, in the meantime, as we await for the final consummation of all things, how do we escape the great day of wrath? How do we escape the great day of wrath? And here Texas takes us to the third and final point. God is faithful to his promises as proven by the granting of worldwide salvation through faith in Christ. The granting of worldwide salvation through faith in Christ. Consider with me how Peter ends his quote of Joel with this massive statement of hope. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why is it? And we'll finish with this. Why is it that both Joel and Peter understood the calling upon the name of the Lord in connection with the spirit of the Lord descending upon all flesh. Why did they see that connection? 
Here's the answer. No one, absolutely no one can call upon the name of the Lord apart from the work of the spirit of the Lord. Therefore, they understood this prophecy being fulfilled with the coming of the spirit. Anyone who comes, calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why? Because now the spirit is here. Even our faith is the gift of the spirit of Christ. Remember the eschatological end times temple of the Lord, meaning what? The church doesn't build itself up. Who builds the church? Christ builds his church. How? By the spirit. Consider what Peter said. I'm sorry, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except, except in the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit, the one who empowers us to confess Jesus as Lord. He gives us faith and understanding. Amazingly, the New Testament identifies this Lord of Joel's prophecy as none other than Jesus Christ himself. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. And we're bringing this to a close. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. Here's Paul sending his greetings to the Corinthians. And as Paul sends his greetings to the saints at Corinth, we see a parallel verse. And this is what Paul tells the Corinthians. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. First Corinthians one, two to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place do what call upon the name of, and now he identifies the Lord of Joel. All those who call upon the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Jesus is the Lord upon whom, upon whose name we must call, not just once, but for the rest of our lives. And so if this morning you're not a Christian, then the invitation is that you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Bible says there is salvation in no other name, but Jesus Christ the Lord Jesus Christ is a sufficient savior. And so you must call upon his name this morning, brothers and sisters. God is faithful. Indeed, God faithfully gathered his people from exile and he brought them back to Jerusalem to begin the much anticipated restoration. God faithfully kept his word to give the spirit in abundance to all who believe both young and old, male and female, rich or poor. And God faithfully granted the worldwide salvation that was promised through the covenant with Abraham that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, finally, but the spirit, all the families of the earth can be blessed as the spirit leads them more and more to faith in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he continues to build the church all over the world, all over the world. And so whether we are rejoicing this morning or suffering this morning, whether we are enjoying abundance this morning or scarcity, whatever our circumstances, my brothers and sisters, God is faithful and he will fulfill his purposes in us.
Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for once again reminding us of these truths. As we come to the church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we understand, Lord, that you are bringing us closer to a greater and deeper understanding of your truths. And this has been a small part of that journey. But I pray, Lord, that you will take what was spoken today and by the Spirit continue to apply it to our lives. For you are indeed faithful. And the work that you began in us, you will bring to completion until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we long for that day. And we want to see the Lord Jesus face to face. But in the meantime, Father, continue to renew our minds so that we might become like Christ. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.